everybody. It's Amy Walter, Editor-in-Chief of the Cook Political Report. Welcome to the Odd Years Podcast. It's an odd-numbered year, which means that national elections are on hiatus. But the issues, trends, and personalities that impact electoral politics are always in cycle. In the gauzy TV version of politics, think 1990s West Wing TV series, campaigns are won with compelling speeches, dazzling debate performances, perfectly crafted campaign ads. In reality, campaigns are won on grit, endurance, and attention to detail. Some of the most important work a campaign does is during the time known colloquially as the invisible primary. Now, during this period, basically the off year between the end of the midterms and the start of the new year, most of what a campaign does is behind the scenes, hence the term invisible. They're courting donors, wooing delegates, convincing elected officials to endorse them. It's also a time when the parties have outsized influence, setting the rules and the dates for the nominating contests. Understanding the rules and how to use them to your advantage is an underappreciated but critical part of a presidential campaign. You win the nomination for the president by winning the most delegates, period. In 2008, Barack Obama lost some of the biggest states to Hillary Clinton in that primary, like California, Texas, and New York, but prevailed thanks to a focus on running up the margin of victory in small states and caucuses. They knew that they would garner as many, if not more, delegates from doing that strategy than by winning the big, fancy, gauzy primaries. In 2020, Trump won the most delegates despite the fact that he took less than 50% of the popular vote. How did he do that? Well, most Republican contests are winner-take-all or winner-take-most. Doesn't matter if you win by 10 votes or 10,000 votes, you get all those state delegates. My guest today is someone who understands the invisible primary like no one else. Josh Putnam is a political scientist and consultant specializing in delegate selection rules, presidential campaigns, and elections. He's the founder of FHQ Strategies, LLC. Our conversation took place on June 29th. Josh Putnam, hello. Thank you for joining us on The Odd Years. So fun to have you. Yeah, I'm happy to join you. So you write on your fantastic blog for those folks who would like to tap in. It's a front load frontloadinghq.com, right? That's the one. Um, one of about, the ones. Or the ones, yes. About something known as the invisible primary. All the things that are happening behind the scenes that voters don't necessarily see, but that are critically important to the upcoming campaign. Talk us through some of what you see as the biggest storylines going on right now on the Democratic and Republican side for this invisible primary. So, you know, where, you know, folks who are casual observers may catch some of the fire hose of information that's coming out. Um, I tend to boil it down to a few things. Certainly polling is a part of that. Um, I'm not paying a whole heck of a lot of attention to it just to kind of get a check on where things are. Um, but other than that, I'm more interested in who the campaigns are hiring, how much money they're raising, where they're visiting, things of that nature. Beyond what the campaigns are doing, um, what states and state parties are doing in terms of setting up their rules for 
from uh, the primaries and caucuses that are going to settle who's going to win these nominations next year. So what are the like what are the dominant storylines here? I mean, I remember, you know, almost every four years there's a there's a conversation in each party about maybe we should do something differently than we did last time. There was the superdelegates debate after the 2008 election on the Democrat side, Republicans after uh, Mitt Romney's loss were talking about wanting to have more time to vet candidates uh, rather than front-loading the calendar. So there's always some rejiggering that goes on every year. What What's going on? We know on the Democratic side, we moved the calendar. So I want to talk to you about, they, they moved the calendar. I want to sure. talk to you about that. Sure. What are some other things that are going on sort of under the radar that could have a really big impact on how this nomination fight on the Republican side plays out? So they just noted um, one of the things, big things that I'm watching right now is what the state parties are doing with respect to their delegate allocation rules. Um, you know, it's pretty standard on the Democratic side, right? Um, everybody, uh, every state um, allocates their delegates proportionally. There's a 15% threshold that candidates have to reach in order to qualify for delegates. That's standard across all of the states um, and, and territories. On the Republican side, um, the, the National Party has in the past um, given the state parties complete discretion to set those rules. But in recent cycles, we've seen them kind of dial that back a little bit to say, you know, after the middle of March, you can start to use winner take all rules if that's what you want to do, where, uh, you know, even if if a candidate wins with a slim plurality of votes, they win all of the delegates. But before that point, you've got a weird kind of melange of different rules. They're supposed to be proportional, but they're not proportional in the, the sense that the Democratic Party defines it. Um, so there, there are other thresholds that are built into that, that, you know, if a candidate wins 50 percent of the votes statewide or in a congressional district and they win all the delegates there, that's still cool during the period before the middle of March. Um, but, but again, you know, that that's something that's left up to the discretion of the states, how they want to shape that. Um, one thing that we saw um, in 2020 was that the Trump campaign was very involved in pushing state parties to make that as difficult for others, other candidates as possible to, to win delegates. So thresholds were raised to their maximum um, in an effort to uh, um, create a situation where Trump would win all or most of the delegates. And uh, other than that one Bill Weld delegate in, in Iowa, Trump won all the rest of them. Um, so what I'm watching right now is the extent to which state parties are starting to, to make changes there because the National Party didn't make any real significant changes to, to their guidelines for how states or uh, state parties are supposed to behave. In. Um, so recently we've seen um, decisions in, in Idaho for them to scale things back. The state eliminated the primary there by mistake. The uh, state party over the weekend uh, decided to, to use a caucus. If the state government can't get their act together and bring the primary back, Michigan, same sort of thing. They're doing a, a kind of a hybrid between the, the primary and caucus. But those sorts of things that I'm looking for and, and that matter in kind of putting the puzzle together um, right. for how the candidates are going to tackle things come primary season. when, when Well, it seems as if, to your point about the, the Trump campaign being organized in uh, 2020, seems as if they're doing the same in 2024, which spending a great deal of time basically lobbying these state parties 
to put together plans that they think benefit their candidate. And has that been successful, do you think? I would say the jury's still out because certainly Trump is not the only one. His campaign's not the only one that, that's doing this. There's there's evidence that the DeSantis folks are doing the same um, back a few weeks ago when, when there was talk of, of California Republicans having a an advantageous system that I think was cast wrong by the L.A. Times and their story. But that's a whole other thing um, that that the the party there had heard from from several campaigns and, and the state party was basically of. Uh, told him, you know, we, we haven't settled on the rules yet. We'll do that in, in September, right before the, the October 1st deadline. But yeah, I mean, there's some evidence, I suppose, that the Trump folks were successful in perhaps lobbying folks in Idaho and Michigan to make the changes that they made recently. But I think there are other factors that are involved there. You know, I guess uh, Chris uh, Lacevita, whatever his name is, yeah, with yeah. the Trump campaign, uh, took credit for what happened in Michigan, or at least nudging them in the right direction. If you're sitting in Trump campaign headquarters, you either want to move states that are possibilities into the caucus category, because they feel like that's a, an advantageous format for them this time, as opposed to, say, 2016, when they weren't successful. Um, right. in, that in was uh, where Ted Cruz was doing a lot better. Right, yeah. right, right. Um, uh, and and they're trying to play defense on most of these rules to keep what they established in 2020 to have that carry over to 24. Yeah, that's what's really interesting. Uh, just thinking about how the National Party weighs in on this, uh, because you would think if, again, a party that loses an election says, well, maybe we should go and, and tweak some of these rules as we're thinking through the kind of candidate we want to come out in 2024. And maybe these winner-take-all primaries aren't really helpful because it ensures that a candidate who doesn't win a majority of the votes, who could win a plurality, much as uh, Donald Trump did, can still be our nominee. But that conversation never really happened, did it? It, it really didn't. Um, the The Republican Party has a, a, a temporary committee that they kind of reestablish every four years or have over the last few cycles. And, and that, that committee just, just did not come back with anything substantive. I mean, there were some mm -hmm. subtle changes here and there with respect to cleaning up some some binding issues with delegates from past cycles. But I mean, that if, if that's your your big change, then no, um, it's it's counter to the pattern that we've seen in the past where parties who lose the White House make some changes. Now, whether that has an impact on someone winning or not in the general election, that's right. up for you can have a whole other. That's right. <laughs> sure, that's right. Sure. But they at least feel like they have some ownership. Right, right. right. Um, well, it, uh, it, it, it's it's. <laughs> Theoretically, an easy change to make that makes it look as if the National Party is doing something, whether or not it has an impact or not. That's right. That's right. And they need to feel like they are, um, yes, consequential. Their decisions are consequential in that. Let's talk about something else uh, that is obviously getting a lot of attention, which is the Democrats being the one that shook up their primary calendar, not the Republican, pushing Iowa and New Hampshire out of its traditional first and second and putting South Carolina first. Of course, Joe Biden owes South Carolina a lot uh, and uh, for, for his win. New Hampshire is not happy about this. Big surprise, Continues right? to be unhappy about this. It's also a rule in New Hampshire that its state and 
in its constitution, it has the first primary in the nation. So what do Democrats do with this? How does this get resolved? Um, well, Rules and Bylaws Committee of the Democratic Party met um, Friday a week ago um, on June 16th. And uh, one of the co-chairs, Jim Roosevelt, um, basically said, look, you know, we're, we're dealing with a state who has been a, a, a repeat offender. These aren't his words, they're mine, but that's essentially what he said. Uh, we've dealt with this in the past. It looks like we're going to have a long and, and prolonged process with the New Hampshire Democratic Party. Um, and, and that's true. I don't know how this gets resolved. I think there are a, a few things one can look at on, on that front. From the Democratic Party, the National Party's perspective, they want New Hampshire to follow the rules. Um, so, I mean, much was made of the extension for the, the waiver that, that has to be issued for New Hampshire to hold an early primary. Um, being extended to September 1st recently by the, the Rules and Bylaws Committee. While some in New Hampshire viewed that as the, the, the DNC kind of taking a step back from the, the edge of the cliff and coming to their senses or whatever, that's not really what was happening. Um, it buys time for all sides, all parties concerned to, to come to some resolution. What that's going to be is yet to be determined. The National Party... What do you would, think? Would... How do you, yeah, how do you think this does end up working out? Because as you said, states often push the... The parties uh, and say, we want to do it our way. We don't care what you guys said. You're going to have to negotiate with us. And then somewhere along the way, a resolution occurs. But there is the possibility, isn't there, that New Hampshire says, we're having a primary when we have a primary. Whether Joe Biden participates in it or not isn't our problem. Yep. It's the DNC's problem. How likely is that, do you think? to happen, that there's a primary that, and Joe Biden doesn't participate in it. I, I, if things continue on the same course they're on now, Joe Biden won't be on the ballot there. I mean, the, the New Hampshire Democratic Party has maintained a steady, consistent line on this, that, that we're going to follow state law. We're going to have a primary whenever the secretary of state sets it and we'll go from there. If it's compliant, then great. If not, then that's, that's not our issue. I think what's different this time around in this particular struggle is that these things usually don't happen when an incumbent president is running for renomination, right? right? Um, usually they keep the rules that got them the nomination in the first place, and, and we haven't seen that this time. Um, so it could be that the president um, and, and the DNC, to some extent, are, are willing to play this out to, to the convention next year and have a discussion about seating or not seating the delegation from, from New Hampshire. Given how this thing has gone in the past, these these uh, disputes have gone with New Hampshire in the past. Folks in the Grand State have gotten their way, right? They feel like we'll play this out. We always do. We can wait to the last minute to schedule our primary. Um, we can wait to the last minute to see whether you'll see us at the delegation. And and gosh knows the convention's about bringing folks together. Um, you really want to keep uh, us out of this process? Democrats may be willing to do that. We don't know that. My, my hunch is that this is, uh, it's, it's not something that's necessarily going to resolve itself in 2023. I think if this goes into 2024, then it's going to go the distance. That there may wow. be some sort of uh, compromise that's reached before the convention. I honestly don't know where this is going to go because this is, this, is, this is different than what we've seen before. As That's I mentioned, right. right, incumbent parties don't tend to, to shake up the calendar, much less the rules, as much as the Democrats have this time. That's right. So what does this mean, do you think? We start, we don't have a very serious primary challenge to Joe Biden. I know RFK Jr. now is polling somewhere in the teens, but 
this is not somebody who's who's coming particularly close to knocking off Joe Biden. If we go through this primary process going and then go forward into 2028, do we think that the map stays the same, that South Carolina now becomes a permanent number one? Or is this just going to be a one-off for Joe Biden? You know, how, how does this, how do these changes tend to stick or not stick? Well, um, South Carolina is unique in that the state party sets when the primary is. So there's some flexibility there that the DNC could say, look, we gave it to you last time. You could do the right thing and help us establish this rotation that we want to. We'll keep you in the early window, but let's move somebody else up. It could also be that that state laws and such make that tough to pull off, right? That you can't move Nevada four years from now or that you can't move Michigan out of the early window if Republicans take control there, if, if you will. I think that that what uh, Biden and, and for, to some degree the DNC wants to do here is to try and establish this rotation. The extent to which things actually rotate um, and new states go in and come off every four years, I think it remains to be seen. It's, it's tough to change state laws um, for, for partisan reasons and, and other political ones as well. I think they're trying to establish something where, you know, this may stick around as it is for a cycle or two, but we're going to try and work some in and work some off, just depending on what states are competitive um, and, and what makes sense um, it, if they can pull it off. Uh, again, it's a tricky proposition, but, but I think it's one they're, they're attempting to pull off. So this feels a lot more unsettled in terms of when the, the actual dates of the primaries will be than it has been in recent times. Is that fair assessment or does it always look this cloudy before the sun comes out at the end of the year and the rules are set and people kind of, you know, uh, these these uh, d- d- discussions turn into reality? Um. For me, I look at where every state's moving. So uh, it's it's not 2008. It's not 2012 to me. We are seeing some uncertainty at the front of the calendar that we haven't necessarily had over the last couple of cycles. I don't know that this is necessarily crazier than than 2008 or, or, or 2012. Not in my book. There aren't as many moving parts. Um, mm, okay. I, I just updated the calendar this morning on my end. It just it struck me that most legislatures are out of session now. Um, most of the legislation that was considered has either already been passed and states have moved behind the early states um, or, or those bills all failed. Um, and it's been a relatively quiet cycle. There's a lot of noise um, from the front, but um, in terms of, of all the movement that's happening, I, I think it's a relatively quiet one. That's, that's right. Okay, that's so my perspective, right? No, no, no. I, we want your perspective. So then, walk us through the calendar on the Republican side. When does it all kick off in Iowa? Well, South Carolina Republicans settling for something later in February. That probably means that New uh, Nevada Republicans, if they're able to get their caucus that they seem to want, um, if they schedule that sometime in, in between the beginning of February and and South Carolina Republican Party primary, then I always probably going to start on January 15th. Okay. Um, and New Hampshire follow eight days later on, on Tuesday, the, the 24th. 
So I can start making my reservation. Oh, sure. In Des Moines for that second week. And and, okay. All right. Good to know. This is what we're, this is, this is. Oh, sure. Sure. Well, good talking to you. And then, uh, and then that's right. That's, it's really just all about me, Josh. And when, and well, when yeah. I you're, you're not the only my... one asking me these questions. I have old <laughs> political science buddies that call me and like, how confident are you? Cause I see calendars elsewhere that are disputing. No, 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 you're fine. It's January, blah, blah, blah. And same with, and so for Democrats, they kick things off in early February in South Carolina. Well, and th- there's that whole New Hampshire question. There's the whole thing in New Hampshire there, question. Right. Um, That's right. If, if, well, I mean, there there will be a New Hampshire Democratic primary, whether the Democrats whether it's sanctioned or use, not. use right. the, the results of it or not to allocate delegates, regardless of whether the Democratic Party in, in New Hampshire opts into that primary or not, uh, it, it won't be sanctioned if it's before February 3rd, where South Carolina That's right. Democratic primary That's right. position. So, um, and what happens to Iowa? Where do they go? They That's do. kind of the question right now. There was a lot made last or, or recently um, with with the rules and bylaws committees um, uh, deeming the, the Iowa delegate selection plan non-compliant. Some folks call that a rejection, which means, makes it sound kind of final. It's not that way. It's not the way it works. Um, right. That non-compliance just means, look, you've got some missing pieces here that you as a state party have to fill in. And the big thing for Iowa Democrats was, yes, we're proposing this, this alternate caucus process where we've got an all mail-in preference vote. But they don't have a date for it, right? And without that date, you know, can't say whether that, that plan or the process is going to be compliant under DNC rules. You know, I, I, because of the uncertainty with both the Georgia primary and, and New Hampshire, I, I, I have a hunch, this hasn't been reported, but my hunch has been that Iowa's been, or Iowa Democrats have been angling to, to take one of those slots. That, hey, we've played mm-hmm. by the rules. We understand. We don't want to be first. We want to still be early. Um, but given the conversations that were had last week or, or recently at the, the, the Rules and Bylaws Committee meeting in Minneapolis, didn't seem like the DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee was was amenable to that. And said, look, you know, we, we need a date on this. Anything on or after March 5th, which is Super Tuesday, is fine with us. There may still be discussions that are had, but... but um, so, in other words, Iowa Democrats aren't likely to have much of a say early in the process. They'll still... Not not as play. early as they've been in the past, depending on where they right. finish that preference vote, the mail-in preference vote. Um but yeah, it, it, it'll be different. But I, I also get the sense that after the chaos of, of 2020, Iowa Democrats. Yeah, no, the they don't have a lot of willing, leverage. They don't have yeah. a lot of leverage, but I think they're also willing to play ball or, or they, they're uh-huh. they play uh-huh. a little bit with this just to see if they can get back into the early window. But unlike New Hampshire Democrat, they're they're playing a longer game that that we may miss out this time. But hey. Let's do what we can to kind of get back in the good graces of, of the National Party and, and, and get back into the early window for, for 2028 when it actually kind of matters. Um, that's this, a, this, that's this actually so a very good point. That's a very good point, which is Iowans being, I don't know if the right word is humble but uh, or gracious, but they are certainly playing a longer game versus New Hampshireites who say, look, this is part of our law, our state law, that sure. we go first. So you can't really compromise on that. We'll see what they end up doing. One other thing I wanted to touch base on, uh, we don't talk enough about filing deadlines. Again, I know for a lot of people who cover politics, they think 
that this just happens miraculously. People show up at events and on the ballot and their campaign headquarters, but you got to get on the ballot first before you can uh, actually hope to win a state. And recently you put up a list of filing deadlines, which I thought were fascinating because I noticed for many of these states, including the early states like Nevada, you have to file in October. Yep. So some of these folks who say, well, I'm going to I'm going to keep my powder dry for a while. Maybe I'll get in later. I'm looking at you, Governor Glenn Youngkin from sure. Virginia. Sure. Um, give us a reality check about how late they can realistically jump into this thing. It's it's too late now, honestly. Really? <laughs> you know, if, if folks are thinking about it now, um, you know, I, I mean, for folks that just got in, right, that's kind of the cutoff. I mean, I think Mike Pence said a few months back that, you know, you need to get in by by the middle or end of June. And I think that's probably right. Because, um, I mean, otherwise you're getting into a Rick Perry sort of situation where, one, you, you haven't exposed yourself as a candidate to national scrutiny. But you also have to to put together and and uh, put together a campaign, and you can't do that on the fly. It takes time. I know people get irritated with how long this process is, but it's this for a reason. Um, and yeah, you've got to to make these decisions early. You've got to lay the groundwork early. I mean, you know, I just just kind of dart back to to 06, 07 when when Obama was talking with. You know, David Pluff and David Axelrod and all those folks about, okay, what, what's the plan here? Or what, what, what are we doing? How are we getting delegates? And, and already then they're talking about that well in advance. And, and that was well over a year in advance of, of when he even got in. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say that for Youngkin, unless chaos ensues, is, is not going to find it. Uh, easy sledding to get in should things go Republicans away in Virginia come November. Right. Um, the other thing I uh, wanted to get your opinion on and your insights on getting on the ballot as an independent candidate or as a non two party candidate. So we heard a lot about this no labels sure. effort. Um, for a so-called unity ticket. We know there's a Green Party candidate who's already announced. And there may be other candidates who run as third-party, independent, or however they want to um, align themselves. How does that process work? And when should when do we need to start really paying attention to the mechanics of that? Well, I mean, obviously, given that that's for the general election, there we're talking about a little more time there. Yeah, um, yeah. But we also already know that No Labels is working to get on the ballot in all 50 states. They've already gotten on in, in a couple of crucial states um, that, that could be consequential should they actually run a candidate. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking about a process that's mainly going to start in, in 2024. But, but again, same sort of rules apply. Everything's different from state to state in terms of filing deadlines and filing fees and all the rest of that. And given that we're talking about folks who are, are outside of the two major parties, um, that the bar can be a lot higher, just depending on what state we're talking about. You mean 
the required number of signatures. Right. Just, well, it's, it's just a lot harder to get on the ballot is what right, you're saying. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, again, if, if, if we're talking about the Democratic and Republican parties, they are guaranteed a position. But, it, you know, given that they're one of two major parties, um, they're virtually guaranteed a spot on the ballot, just given how they have performed in, in past elections, basically. Um, so in, in some states, it, it's, it's based on, um, you know, how well a party has done in the past. Um, so you, you'll, you'll see the, the Libertarian Party, for instance, kind of drop off the ballot in some states and come on in some states from, from cycle to cycle based on how they did previous cycles. The Odd Years is brought to you by the Cook Political Report team. It's our way of sharing the questions we love to ask and the conversations we enjoy having behind the scenes. If you'd like to explore more of what we have to offer, consider subscribing. Cookpolitical.com slash subscribe. Odd Years listeners can use the discount code ODD, the number 10, so O-D-D, the number 10, to save 10% on any subscription. This offer is available only to new subscribers. Josh, we are now moving into the section we call the laser speed round, but it's actually less speed round than it is more of a, a lighthearted round, uh, which is to ask questions of our guests about politics that aren't really necessarily about the thing we brought you on to talk about specifically. And one thing we've been asking everybody is to go back into your mind and think about the who was the first elected official that you interacted with personally. Like, is there someone you remember as saying, that was the first person that really, you know, I can say, this was my first political experience or interaction. As someone with an academic background, I, I don't have a lot of, of experience with the, the campaigns themselves. So, um, you know, I, I got dragged to political rallies as a kid. But um, in, in terms of, of uh, you know, meeting politicians or whatever, I don't have much experience with that, I, I guess. Um, connecting with folks in, in the rules game, I guess, is, is probably the, the closest I can come to an, an answer there. So, I mean, I, I mentioned Jim Roosevelt before he and, and, um, John Ryder, who was, um, general counsel of the RNC for a little while and, and some other folks were involved in this, this kind of informal, uh, bipartisan, nonpartisan group that we get together and talk rules. Um, it was around, I guess, the 2012 cycle where we started doing that. Some of those folks have passed on since then. Um, others are still at it, but but um, those are the folks that that um, have, have really, I won't say necessarily shaped me, but but certainly given me an, an eye towards a an inside look at, at how this process works, rather than just my kind of stodgy academic way of looking. <laughs> well, how does one get involved in this part of? of the process as you pointed out there's this is a unique group of individuals right <laughs> they're not the flashy folks they're not making a whole lot of money doing this this is not putting on rallies or putting ads on television um from your experience where do what brings these folks into these committees what what gets them interested in, in making and 
uh, adjudicating the rules of their party? Well, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll quote, uh, well, I guess he probably paraphrased this anyway, but, but I mentioned John Ryder a few moments ago, and, and uh, I'll remember one of those meetings. He said, you know, he who knows the rules knows the game. Um, and that's, that's, I think, a draw to some of these folks is that, you know, if, if you don't know the rules, you can't get into a position where you are winning elections or at the end of that, governing. Um, so it all kind of starts there um, for, for some of these folks. Um, for others, it's just a matter of, of look, they work their way up through the ranks. Uh, you know, there are folks like me. Elaine K. Mark is a, an academic, but she's been involved in, in the Rules and Bylaws Committee on the Democratic side for a generation, I'll say, um, if not yeah, longer. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then, is there anything that uh, you think will be a curveball thinking through this process? Now, again, there's always something every year that people didn't expect. You pointed to 2008 and the fact that the Obama campaign figured out, huh, it's uh, these rules suggest that we can get more delegates by running up the score in some of these smaller caucuses than we can by narrowly winning a big state. Let's go all in on these caucuses. Is there going to be something like that this year, you think, if you are looking at these rules? If, I, if I'm running against, uh, if I'm running in the Republican primary and uh, not named Donald Trump, what what can I hope to do? looking at these rules right now. Yeah, I, well, and and as we've talked about, it's unsettled right now. So I think all of those folks are, are still trying to, to lobby states to put rules in place that are going to be advantageous to them or as advantageous as they can be. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to think about curveballs in, in a cycle in a party on the Republican side where it seems to all be curveballs. But, uh, you know, look, my thinking right now is is that, you know, though DeSantis has kind of stalled out, um, as, as some are, are calling it, that campaign is really well positioned to, to do well next year. They may or may not, right? It could be that, right. that Trump holds the line and, and the leads that he has in the polls now translate when, when voters start going to the polls next year. Um, and this is a done deal by the end of February or after Super Tuesday or, or what have you, or close to it. Um, but look, you know, I, my sense is the DeSantis folks, though Trump was certainly more organized, um, and his campaign was more organized in 2020, um, that was not competitive. I, I, I don't know that on the DeSantis side, whether they have faith that, that the Trump organization or the Trump delegate operation works as well in a competitive cycle, and they're willing to play that out. I mean, we're talking about most of those same folks from the Cruz campaign in 2016 have carried over to, to DeSantis 2024. Mm -hmm. And and they're savvy on that front. They they know the delegate game and they know the rules. Um, and and uh, again, it's a narrow path, but, um, you know, they feel like, you know, if if we could play this delegate game and out hustle Trump, something that Trump and his campaign has said is not going to happen, then um they may be able to to make it competitive. Now, whether DeSantis is able to win things or not yet, is yet to be determined. But, you know, not to make it all about it, all comes down to the delegates. And I don't know that it necessarily will. I think I, I think in this race, it all comes down to Trump um, and and uh, how sticky his support is. But um, 
yeah, if 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 we're looking for one curveball, I, I think the fact that the, the DeSantis folks know the delegate game that may play a role in this once once we yeah. get to to votes being cast next year. Yeah, that's a good that's a very good point. Well, Josh Putnam, thank you so much for coming in and joining us, giving us an early lay of the land. Ultimately, things are still a little bit unsettled, but we have a pretty good sense of where of what this calendar is going to look like sure. and then ultimately what the rules will look like by the fall when these state party plans are uh, deadlines um, must be met. So we'll make sure to check in with you once we get a little further down the road into this fall. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we know more now than we did. We'll know more in a few months than we do now. And that's, that's uh, how we that's put the way it works. together. Yep. Perfect. All right. Thanks, Josh. Have a good one. You too. Thanks so much, Amy. Be sure to follow the odd years on your favorite podcast platform, leave a review. And if you're a Cook Political Report subscriber, check out our exclusive bonus content at cookpolitical.com. We'll see you next time on the odd years.